In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Welcome to In Discussion and this second program in the series, Crossing Over the Bridge. In this historic program, eminent guests Professor William A. Tiller, John Perkins, Dr. Brian O'Leary and Nassim Haramain come together for the first time. Professor William A. Tiller, Fellow to the American Academy for the Advancement of Science, Professor Emeritus of Stanford University's Department of Materials Science, spent 34 years in academia after nine years as an advisory physicist with the Westinghouse Research Laboratories. He's published over 250 conventional scientific papers, three books, and several patents. And in parallel for over 30 years, he's been avocationally pursuing serious experimental and theoretical study of the field of psychoenergetics, which will very likely become an integral part of tomorrow's physics. In this new area, he's published an additional 100 scientific papers and four seminal books. He was recently quoted, For the last 400 years, an unstated assumption of science is that human intention cannot affect what we call physical reality. Our experimental research of the past decade shows that, for today's world, and under the right conditions, this assumption is no longer correct. We humans are much more than we think we are, and psychoenergetic science continues to expand the proof of it. John Perkins has lived four lives as an economic hitman, as the CEO of a successful alternative energy company, who was rewarded for not disclosing his economic hitman past. As an expert on indigenous cultures and shamanism, a teacher and writer who used this expertise to promote ecology and sustainability, while continuing to honor his vow of silence about his life as an economic hitman, and as a writer who, in telling the real-life story about his extraordinary dealings as an EHM, has exposed the world of international intrigue and corruption that is turning the American Republic into a global empire despised by increasing numbers of people around the planet. Dr. Brian O'Leary is a scientist-philosopher with 50 years of experience in academic research, teaching and government service in frontier science and energy policy. He was a NASA scientist astronaut during the Apollo program, the first to be selected for a planned Mars mission, and participated in unmanned planetary missions as an Ivy League professor. Over the past four decades, O'Leary has been an international author, speaker, peace activist, founder of non-profits, an advisor to progressive U.S. Congress members, 
and presidential candidates. O'Leary's latest book, The Energy Solution Revolution, describes the enormous potential of breakthrough clean energy technologies, their suppression and their logical necessity for our survival. Zero-point vacuum energy, cold fusion and advanced hydrogen and water chemistry could provide us all an abundant future for all of humanity. In 2004, he and his wife, the artist Meredith Miller, moved to the Andes in Ecuador, where they co-created Montezunas, an eco-retreat and educational center dedicated to creativity and the rights of nature. And my final guest, Nassim Haramein, has spent most of his life researching the fundamental geometry of hyperspace, studying a variety of fields from theoretical physics, cosmology, quantum mechanics, biology and chemistry, to anthropology and ancient civilizations. Combining this knowledge with a keen observation of the behavior of nature, he's discovered a specific geometric array that he's found to be fundamental to creation, and the foundation for his unified field theory that subsequently emerged. In the past 20 years, Haramain has directed research teams of physicists, electrical engineers, mathematicians, and other scientists. He's founded a non-profit organization, the Resonance Project Foundation, where, as the director of research, he continues exploring unification principles and their implications in our world today. The foundation is actively developing a research park on the island of Hawaii, where science, sustainability, and green technology come together. Professor William Tiller, John Perkins, Dr. Brian O'Leary, and Nassim Haramain join me on this historic program, Crossing Over the Bridge. Welcome to In Discussion today. I am very proud to bring you Professor Bill Tiller, John Perkins, Brian O'Leary and Nassim Haramain. Gentlemen, welcome to the second Crossing Over the Bridge program today. Pleasure to be here. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure. Thanks for hosting the party. <laughs> <laughs> Let me start off, if I may, with you, John. The first program talked about the merits of zero-point energy discuss the ways in which we can very quickly push back against the, as you call it, predatory greed in our last conversation, and obviously this do consume society. But we are all here today in this, what I call, creation of a new governance that I hope that we can assure. From your point of view, how do you see us going forward in being able to bring a program in order to provide a very strong message and delivery to people? Well, uh, from a technical standpoint, I'm not sure what it takes to move forward with a program like this, but I think uh, what we need to understand is it's absolutely essential, more essential than at any time perhaps in human history, uh, that we're truly evolving uh, into a new level of consciousness as human beings, or, or at least we're approaching that evolution. And it, it ultimately is our only hope. I think we can all understand that that we have to change the consciousness of how we look at ourselves as a living species on, on a very fragile and very tiny spaceship, uh, the Earth. 
and that it's truly going to change, take a change of consciousness. And programs like, like this one are what will make that happen. I've been feeling it in the past five years, six years, as I've been traveling around uh, the country and in places like China and Europe and Iceland and Latin America and all over, that there is a, a huge shift going on. Uh, people are, are really struggling to, to get into this higher level of consciousness, and but we have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. It's going to take programs like this, so it's essential that we move forward. And 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 the job that you're doing with this program is phenomenal. And I, you know, I congratulate you for that and applaud you and uh, want to support you in any way I can. Could I ask you what you think the two paths are in? this new evolution that we're about to go into and and I'm sure this Barbara Marx Hubbard says we are in it we're traveling through it at an accelerated speed but for our audience and somebody out there who is still very much in the matrix this world how would you define this full sense of consciousness interesting you mentioned Barbara because she, she, she's coming to my house next week I live on, a, on, a, on an island off the coast of Washington State and uh, she and uh, Lynn Roberts, who like co-facilitate workshops with, and I are getting together to discuss these very things. Uh, and Barbara and I spent a lot of time talking about this. Uh, you know, I think it's best summarized by the prophecy of the eagle and the condor, which is very prevalent in, a, in South America and has become pretty well known in many other parts. It says that thousands of years ago, perhaps around 3,000 of years ago, there was a prophecy that human societies would take two courses, uh, one group of societies would take the course of the ego, which is the course of the mind, the brain, the science, the technology, industrialization. You could even call it the masculine course. The other part of society would go the course of the condor, which was considered to be the course of the heart, uh, the feelings, the intuition, the emotions, the feminine course. And in the fourth Pachacuti, and a Pachacuti is a 500-year interval, the fourth Pachacuti would start in about 1500, the two would come together, according to the prophecy, and clash, and the eagle would be so strong as to practically drive the condor into extinction, but not quite. 500 years later, in the fifth Pachacuti, the opportunity would arise for the two to fly together, to dance, to soar in one sky, to mate, and to create a new offspring, which would be a higher level of, of consciousness. The coming together, the heart and the mind, the science and the, and the emotional, the, the, the feminine and the masculine. And, and I think that's, that's how we need to look at this, that neither one of these courses is, is, is the right one by itself. They require balance. And that's where we're coming now. And, of course, we've seen the prophecy being realized, 1500, you know, Columbus, uh, the industrialized nations of the world practically drove the indigenous ones into extinction. And in recent times, the last 10, 20 years, we've seen a real coming together where indigenous teachings are being popularized throughout the industrialized world and the indigenous people are stepping forward to share those teachings so i think we need to look at this there are these two paths in a very generalized way but the solution is in having them truly come together and meld together and out of that to, to create a, a whole new level of consciousness bill tiller could i ask you with that stated by john perkins is there a, another way of defining that? Could it be uh, two dimensions, uh, two levels of reality, uh, yes. where, where one is left behind, uh, and some will call that ascension, of course, where, where some will ascend to a higher level of consciousness while others may be left behind? Well, let's go back to the days of the ancient Greeks where there was two pathways to knowledge. One was called Logos, the other was called mythos. 
the logos is looking outside of self to nature, and mythos is looking inside of self to nature. They eventually went through a long period of powerful religions, and priests began to control things, were the intercessors between normal humans and the gods or God. And then, when the priests were very much in power, the beginnings of Logos transformation into today's orthodox science occurred with uh, Galileo and Kepler and Newton and Copernicus, and so began the beginning of our orthodox science, which is a distance time only reference frame, and of course showed that the priests were very, very wrong in their, their, their actions and their beliefs and their hubris in those beliefs. Well, we have that again today, basically. The orthodox science, which is a distance time only science, and the unstated assumption of that science since the days of Descartes is that no human qualities of consciousness, intention, emotion, mind, spirit, love, parapsychology, psychophysiology, um, none of this can change a real scientific experiment. Well, we took that task on about 12 years ago to seriously test that and found it to be totally wrong in today's world with four well-defined target experiments where we use consciousness to change the properties of materials in a very big way. Let's go now to what is ascending and what is developing within us is the mythos. And the mythos, of course, led to many, many familiar Christs, uh, Krishna, Zoroaster, Melchizedek, Moses, Lutzau, Confucius, Buddha, Jesus, Mohammed, Abdu'l-Baha, and many, many others. These are the leaders of the mythos path. And today is the day when the union of the two paths must occur. And it requires that humans spend much more time looking within and building themselves within, building the infrastructure, and seeing the way that science can be expanded beyond distance-time-only phenomena. Because the important thing that needs to be understood here very clearly is that today's distance-time phenomena let's say quantum mechanics relativity theory, they cannot touch this category of consciousness intention and all the rest that I mentioned because these other phenomena are not distance time dependent. And that's the nexus. The nexus of this issue is that today's orthodox science has had to throw out all of these things because their model won't deal with them, can't deal with them. It's no different than the priests in their day. Their model wouldn't deal with the phenomena. They were using a wrong, uh, not wrong, they were using an inadequate reference frame. And now orthodox science is using an inadequate reference frame. That's why since the 1970s, I have felt if we don't get outside of distance time, we're not going to go anywhere. One more comment is that I've 
developed this duplex reference frame, which allows you to deal with the union of the distance-time category of phenomena and the frequency domain category of phenomena. Not distance-time, but you have to bring into existence a coupler, a coupler which can couple with both sides of the bridge. Nassim Haramain, let me turn to you on this. When we're talking about and using the terminologies mind and heart, what is the specific use of each of those moving forward? And should we be looking more at the dynamics of the heart now rather than the mind? I think that that's a very good question. I think that it's the analogy, mind and heart, is actually a hint itself to the way science must develop at this time in terms of understanding the reality around us, our relationship to it, our relationship to the universe and so on. And that hint is that there is an internal, you could think of it as vectors going towards singularity, uh, side to the event horizon, there's, there's information moving in and there is uh, an external side to the event horizon, there's information moving out and that the two are related through this boundary condition that we call reality that we see everywhere and so the analogy itself whether we think of it as yin and yang masculine feminine and so on that this has to be unified that the, this new science imply a unification of these two fundamental principles and that when they're unified, they give a whole, a holistic view of creation, which includes the experience that we are having in it, and sees that as something valid, something that is fundamental and completely holistically unified to the whole. And that leads not only to higher levels of consciousness, but as well to higher levels of technology, because when you make an analysis on how, what is the bridge, what is the connective solution, what is the equation, how do you define these two worlds in relationship to each other, that you could think as well as finite and infinite and so on. You find that, I think one of the fundamental solutions that has to be elaborated on is that there is a fundamental field of connectivity, that space itself is not empty, that space is imbued with this infinite amount of energy that actually has been known to man for almost a hundred years and, and has been supported experimentally for many, many years and that this energy is the connected fabric that connects us all into this unity of universality uh, that makes up our reality. So uh, by understanding this, not only can we start to understand our relationship to each other, but as well our relationship to the external world and how to use the external world, how to build things in the external world to access this field of information that you can think of as a field of energy that is accessible since all of reality seems to be accessing it. Let me move to Brian O'Leary. Brian O'Leary, thoughts on what you've heard so far? Well, looking at my own life, and I'm now 70 years old, I uh, 
first 40 years of my life was spent in uh, mainstream science uh, as a physicist and astronomer. And I, I was in the physics department of Princeton when I, when I uh, suddenly had some experiences in consciousness to totally change my life that uh, then was an intensive period of metaphysical exploration. In the last uh, 20 years, however, I've, I've become more practical again in trying to synthesize these things. And I know I'm in excellent company here because it, it's absolutely clear to me that, first of all, empty space is not empty. It's a huge potential energy field. Uh, it's a potential information field as well, which we can tap and make use of to have a, a truly sustainable future for humankind. And having been convinced of this and having done experiments myself and having met many people of the stature of uh, Bill Tiller or uh, Erwin Lalo or other people that have, have uh, uh, investigated consciousness as a uh, as the ground of all being, as, as basically the, the basis of, of any kind of uh, physics that needs to be uh, implemented now, that we can actually have everything. We can team up with the indigenous people who are getting exterminated otherwise. That's uh, one of the reasons why I'm so glad you're on this show, uh, John. Is uh, I, tr I truly believe that this coming weekend, while you're up at Barbara's, uh, we're going to have folks here from the Pachamama Alliance, and we're going to be discussing ways that we can practically create a research and development laboratories, for example, to investigate these things hopefully on, on a protected basis, so that we can develop truly free energy and some of the uh, technologies of consciousness, of human intention, and how that can literally heal ourselves and heal water and to actually clean up our planet. This is what I'm here to do for the rest of my life, is to be totally dedicated to synthesizing the you know, new sciences with some of, the, uh, some of the original ways of the original peoples. Let me return back to you, John Perkins. We're talking about this correlation. We talk about the eagle and the condor. We talk about the mind and the heart. And then, for some other reason, I put below that, underneath the eagle and mind establishment, and underneath the condor and the heart, consciousness. Is there something in context there that's sending a message as to where we have to focus our attention on both of these sides of the equation and also John in response to Brian O'Leary where do the indigenous tribes come into this uh, given their knowledge well you know uh, it's a profound <laughs> profound question but I think it really has a pretty simple answer I think we know where we have to go and I think the indigenous people are a great example of that. Uh, Brian uh, spends a great deal of his time in Ecuador with these indigenous people and, and understands it very well. If you if you go out into the Amazon and work with the Achua or the Shua or people that have, that, have, that whose, whose lives have not been too profound, too changed by education and and all the science of the world, they know. You know, for example. Not long ago, I was with a group of Schwa people deep, deep in the Amazon. I've known these people. I was a Peace Corps volunteer with them in 1968. I've known them for a long time. And two young men and I took a hike up to the sacred waterfalls, spent two nights up there uh, sleeping under the stars and doing ritual. When we came back on the third day, just before we reached the community where they live, they stopped and they, looked, they, they, they bent down and they, they looked at this little plant. And then they stood up and they said to me, this plant's sick. 
and three days ago when we went up there, it wasn't sick. It was an amazing thing because I looked at the plant and it didn't look very sick to me. It had a few brown leaves, but I couldn't tell it was sick. And perhaps even more significant, we'd passed millions of plants in those <laughs> three days. We were in the Amazon. And how did they pick out this one? But in any case, that night they, they called a, a meeting of the elders and they described what they had seen. The elders talked about this for a very long time, and in the end they all were in unanimous agreement that they couldn't prove this, but they thought it possible that the message of the plant was that the trails were being overused. And if there was a possibility that the trails were being overused and that that might hurt their children and their grandchildren's futures, then they were gonna close down the trails. And this is not an easy decision for people without chainsaws to make. Making trails in the Amazon is not easy. But they decided that night to close down these trails that the message of the plant might very well be that they were overusing the trails. A few days later, I was back in the United States driving from the airport to my house listening to NPR radio. This is several years ago. And the discussion on the radio was about the Congress convening and, and, and debating as to whether human beings contributed to global warming or not. And at that time, the decision was made that since we couldn't prove that we were contributing to global climate change, we didn't need to do anything about it. Uh, keep the status quo, keep the big corporations, uh, you know, let them continue with all of their destructive activities. And I was so struck by the difference. People without much science or education, or science as we know it, uh, they have their own form of science. In the Amazon, illiterate, we would call them, uneducated, backward people, these are our descriptions of them. They knew what they had to do. If there was any possibility that they were jeopardizing their children's futures, they would change their ways. And then you come to the most educated, quote-unquote, uh, wealthiest society in the history of the world, and it, it can't make a decision, even though I think we all know, we know, that we're on a destructive path, that we're, that we're hurting the world for our children and grandchildren. We know that. It's in our hearts. It's in our DNA. It's in our consciousness. But we have to have the will uh, to really listen to these messages the same way that indigenous people listen to the messages of the plants and the, and the melting glaciers and the rising rivers and everything else. And so I think the answer really lies in how do we open ourselves up to truly knowing, and that's real wisdom, uh, to, to, to really understand what you know in your heart, what you, what the message that we get uh, from Pachamama, from Mother Earth. Bill Tiller, John Perkins there talks or uses this word will. Will, intentionality, one of the same things. What is it that we really have to do to arrest the current movement towards an implosion of Mother Earth? Well, I'm not quite sure how to fully answer that other than keep on keeping on with what we're contributing, the best that we have to offer to the world. But let me go back to look at some of this from a scientific perspective. You can look at the orthodox science that we've done for the last 400 years as a reaction equation between mass and energy with the most dominant connection between these two being E equals mc squared uh, from Einstein. It's a little bit of a wiggle, but you can describe most of the things that have been done deal with that. We know that a difference in the thermodynamic free energy per unit volume of a material, a difference drives processes. Now, we don't know what consciousness is 
in the sense that we can't agree about it, but we know that consciousness manipulates information. And if we look a little further, we know that a process in nature that has an increase in the information content actually produces a, an equal decrease in the thermodynamic entropy per unit volume of nature. And when you look at energy and you look at a change in entropy, you say, well, look, both of these are quantities in the thermodynamic free energy per unit volume. So you know that by allowing consciousness to become a significant uh, intrinsic variable of nature, just hasn't been effectively applied before, that in fact you are manipulating the thermodynamics, an expanded thermodynamics, albeit, but a thermodynamics, the path we've followed for 400 years, just expanded to include consciousness and thus intention as a significant experimental variable in nature. Intention to me is much more than will. Intention is a creative force. It brings things into existence that were not in existence before. The law that is followed is a different law than we thought to be followed. That is, the orthodox science community says, humans can't do that. That is, we now know. Well, if the orthodox science community would read the papers, they would know that it no longer holds. If people build themselves, if they practice their mythos of looking within and bring about the heart-mind connection, which is there if one works at it even just a little bit, you find that new doors are opened and you access the level of the universe that ultimately guarantees amazing amounts of power. We've already talked about this kind of thing being in the vacuum. The basic energy is not infinite, but it is huge compared to all the energy stored and all the physical mass uh, in our universe, a sphere with radius 15 billion light years. That energy is trivial compared to what is stored in a cubic nanometer of the physical vacuum. I mean, in, in essence, that's there, it's there for us, but we're still children. And so we are growing towards our heritage of utilizing this energy. And to utilize it in a proper way, we have to grow ourselves. When you're talking about building within ourselves, absolutely agreed. Uh, given that we are uh, getting to the point of uh, implosion with Mother Earth, how do you go from building within ourselves individually to building collectively and corporately? Ah, it's much tougher, of course. The issue is you can't just take a large number of people and enhance the intention. They have to be, learn how to be coherent and with others, and they have to learn how to be coherent with themselves. They have to sense it, so they have to grow to it, which means they have to exercise. It's like going to an internal gym. If everybody really believes, then they have to work at it. And then the power, the collective power, to make changes are huge, far beyond the things that we've been able to do in the laboratory. It is there for us, but 
we have to build ourselves in the process. The issue is it's a metastable state. For example, with our te technology, we can do all the things that you folks would like to do. The dilemma is it's a metastable state. Simplest example is let's take the laser. All right. If you pump it sufficiently with the right kind of atoms and such there, then it's lifted. The energy levels are lifted to a higher state. And when you trigger it so that they drop down, if they're in phase with each other, you get a coherent light beam. So long as you keep pumping, you will continue to get the light beam. That's a metastable state. Our work is the same. We use intention to lift the gauge symmetry state to a level above our normal reality. It's called the SU2 gauge symmetry state compared to the U1 gauge symmetry state, but it's a metastable state. With that, that is a precursor that we have to have before we intend and put that intention in a device, and the device can then act. The issue is, so long as humans pump it up to that level, because in today's world, that's a metastable state, okay, then you can do these things, but if you don't pump it up to that and keep it pumped up, you can't sustain this alternate reality can provide everything that you're looking for. Now, Sim, uh, this constant state, this continuance in, in what we're doing and what we have to create here, how would you define that? What is the solution practically in inducing this into people to bring enough energy to our world to be able to reverse from where we are fully dependent upon what I call the establishment? I think that uh, this is twofold. There's, there's a part in helping people realize that there's an internal world to their existence that needs to be explored, that, uh, that through internal contemplation, which many methods are available to people today, from yoga to meditation and so on, to become aware of their internal self is one part of this equation because it links them with this fundamental force that connects us all with this metrical space that connects us all and they start to experience their relationship to the universe and, and their impact on it and their responsibility towards it. So that is a very important part. And then applying these new understanding to the external world and actually building technology that agrees with these fundamental principles of nature which have to do with energy conversion as Bill was talking about and this fundamental flux that feeds, that pumps everything into existence and to start to understand that flux. Bill was was mentioning that it's extremely large. Let's put numbers to it, you know, 10 to the 93 grams per centimeter cube. It's, it's an extremely large amount of energy. Uh, if you took all the stars in the universe, right, you know, which is approximately 10 to the 55th grams, and you stuffed them all into a centimeter cube of space, you still wouldn't have this energy density. You'd be off by 39 orders of magnitude. So to realize that that is there, and that it's connecting us all, that it's a function of everything that we see, that actually the material world is part of it, that it's an, it's an energy transfer, it's a pumping of this fundamental flux. To discover that inside of us and apply it outside of us makes, uh, you know, a society that can move to the next level, to the 
that starts to understand their relationship to the universe and adapt their technology to mirror that relationship to the universe. And thus, that society becomes sustainable as the universe is, as nature is sustainable. It, when nature is in equilibrium, it's not only sustainable, it's thriving. It's, it's an amazing energy producing technology and we can be part of it. We can harmonize with it. Uh, John Perkins, I just want to return back to you. This energy that we're talking about, it seems to me, if you look at the evidence, that, that at the moment all of this energy isn't going into the wrong direction, it's going towards the establishment, it's going still towards this corporate greed. We've seen that manifest itself this uh, last summer in, in the Gulf of Mexico. How is it, John, in a practical sense, that this energy is going towards the wrong side of the fence? From my perspective, I'm being, uh, as an economist, I, I see the world pretty much driven by economics. And today, uh, the big corporations are the ones that are, that are the powers that wasn't so long ago that religious establishments kind of ran the world, you know, the Catholic Church, or the Islamic movement, and so on. And then, and then we moved into a time where governments ran the earth and, and ran human beings, and some of them were totalitarian, others were, were democracies or republics like ours, and in the democracies or the republics, elected officials wrote the laws. But what we're seeing today is our elected officials no longer write the laws. Lobbyists do. Our corporations but basically control our elected officials. Uh, the corporations control the planet uh, from a geopolitical standpoint, and they are the ones uh, that are pretty much driving where all the energy goes. And they've defined in this what I call predatory capitalism, which has been around pretty much since just the 70s. It's a pretty short-lived form of capitalism. If you look at capitalism as a 400-year phenomena, it's been a chameleon. It's taken many forms. The most recent one is very predatory unsustainable. It's driven by one simple goal, and that is to maximize profits, regardless of the social and environmental costs. This is new. First hundred years of the United States was a country, uh, no corporation could get a charter unless it proved it was serving in the public interest. There's no reason why our institutions can't serve our interest, the public interest. And I think that's where the, where the energy has to go, and, and to a large degree, that's what this changing consciousness is about, is to recognize uh, that we must all come together to, to, to understand that our number one goal has to be to serve the public interest, and that means the interest of our children and their children, and that means the interest of all the children on the planet, of all species, because for the first time, for the first time in human history, I have to understand that my three-year-old grandson cannot inherit a sustainable, just, and peaceful world unless every child from every species growing up in Ecuador or Botswana or Israel or Palestine also has the goal and is realized of, of establishing a, a peaceful, just, and sustainable world. This is new for the human species. This is a whole new time in history, completely. Let me ask you, Brian O'Leary, having listened to that statement from John, and at the beginning of this I did talk about this new governance. Do you think that this new governance, to be very radical in order to save our planet, which is clearly on a path of destruction, needs to be a governance that prioritizes Mother Earth and nature before it works on the humanities or civilization itself? 
Oh, absolutely, David. Uh, there, there's no question about it. And uh, I, I, John's criteria for what we must do uh, is that it must be peaceful, it must be just, and it must be sustainable. Uh, so the big three criteria uh, in order to form any kind of government that makes sense. And absolutely, you know, if you look at the history of, for example, uh, the development of Zero Point or some of the uh, newer or so-called free energy technologies, they've been uh, not only ignored, they've been severely uh, suppressed and by the powers that be. People have been assassinated trying to develop free energy machines. Uh, this has been going on now since the time of Nikola Tesla. And uh, so it's an extremely dangerous area. It take, it's going to take courage to stand up to the, the powers that be. The powers that be just don't want this. They, they want to wring every last drop of oil out of, out of the ground. And what, what makes moving to Ecuador kind of interesting for me now, because I, I, I didn't realize it when I first moved here, is that almost the entire Amazon rainforest of Ecuador is being earmarked for oil drilling. And we all know uh, some of the, uh, the, the egregious violations of, of uh, ecological principles that have happened there, and that we're talking about the most biodiverse spot on, on the planet. Bill Tiller, we can either go in one direction here and see this planet destroyed in a very short space of time, or we can pick up our sword and oppose the establishment, oppose this uh, run on oil, this corporate greed. What I'm trying to ascertain in this last 20 minutes from all of your perspectives is how can we create enough energy? And can we do that ourselves, or is there a higher force that has to come behind us to accomplish that? Well, I tend to think that the global weirdness of the plant around the planet is a part of the process to wake up the human family so that they will work within themselves to become what has been in potential in us for a very long time. And it's not just within us. I think that there slowly has been a growing, we'll call it concentration, of a particular higher dimensional species allows coupling between the slower than light categories of materials in our world and the faster than light categories of materials in our world. And the process, I think our development is part of this process. Now, it doesn't mean one can't try to do these other things. The dilemma is when you're working with others, individuals, free will is terribly important to make choices. I mean, the physics is the same, but you can use it one way or another. Now, when you talk about big corporations and lobbyists and all those things, that's a very, very powerful entity. And indeed, it would be very important for us to try to stop that. Um, I know in my own case, when I saw this happening with a company that I helped start in Washington, D.C., and was a director for something like 23 years, and I saw it was going to happen, it is happening big time, I decided I could no longer stay with that and be, so I just resigned. I, know I didn't want 
any of my efforts to support that kind of behavior. But that it'll still go on. There has to be a more powerful voice than that. And so you say, yeah, but we've got this great democracy, or we have a democracy. The dilemma is a democracy is very susceptible to lobbyists. And when you have the education level of the populace drops so dramatically as it has in our society, the willingness of the individuals to build themselves, it's growing. It is definitely growing, but still a spit in the bucket compared to the population of our nation. So all I can try to do is to offer the best that I have to the world in whatever ways the universe sees fit to enlighten me to do that. You're, you're moving along a path, the same kind of thing. So is John, so is Brian, so is Nassim. I don't have an answer. I only know that it's possible to create a metastable state that would provide the energy to do what you think you want to do. I have something to say on this, David. I was just wanting to mention the concept of picking up the sword and, and finding the corporation or the establishment and all this. Um, you know, a certain amount of uh, establishing yourself is important. However, I think that really what's important at this time is to actually build the new world build the yeah. the change we want to see and let the corporations stumble all over themselves because the system they've built is unsustainable and it's crumbling very rapidly we just have to have you know the rescue boat ready on time and i think that's where most of our efforts has to be concentrated i would agree with that this new evolutionary process that we talk about, and Barbara Marx Hubbard talks about this in detail, it's a question of how do you find this new dimension, reality, sense of consciousness prior to Mother Earth giving up on us? Perhaps Brian O'Leary, you could answer that. We need to develop technologies that work with nature rather than against nature. When that knowledge became more and more evident to me, then it was very clear to me that that's what we needed to do. We needed to come together and, and conceptualize those things in, in concert with the indigenous people and in concert with, with our own work to be able to come up with solutions that truly will allow us to have a sustainable future. And that, of course, is, is, is the big goal there. And that is what we were here to do. There is just so many promising concepts, even on energy generation alone, I've counted like maybe 200 different technologies, any one of which could break open the whole thing. It could, it could just totally create a whole new sustainable future for humankind without having to, to look backwards, uh, without having to go to solar and wind and biofuels and some of those alternatives. So uh, I, I, I'm very optimistic about this coming along uh, concomitantly with the the destruction of the system such as it is falling under its own weight. That's uh, the scenario I, I favor as well. Bill Tiller. The garage inventor effect. And so I'm getting to the point that almost all of these things you're talking about, Brian, come from people who are using consciousness one way or another within their system of operation. And the thing that isn't recognized 
is that they condition their space to have these things happen. And their space in that conditioned state is a part of the invention. If you try to take the thing that was built in that space to a measuring system, which is a D-space-only measuring system because the company wants to be profitable, you'll generally find that they don't get super results. And it is because the space, the conditioning of the space, is a key part of the infrastructure that allows these wonderful new things to happen. I totally agree with you, Bill. I, uh, I, I've seen that happen time and time again, where the intention of the experimenter is uh, of, of a higher consciousness and general benefit. The, the experiment is almost always more successful. Yeah, and the space itself has stuff in it that has lifted its symmetry state to another higher state, which eventually will be the human home, but it is still a metastable state at this point. And, and you've got to understand it and treat it properly in order to keep that pumped to that higher level of reality. John Perkins, how would you define that, express that to people listening today? Well, I, I, you know, I think if we, if the, 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 what, what, what Brian mentioned is very interesting about moving into this new technology. If I look back to the 50s when I was a, a, a kid, we were all driven by this belief that, that human beings could somehow invent things that were better than, than nature. I, I remember, you know, you, you know we, we weren't going to have to work anymore because vacuum cleaners and robots were going to do it all for us. And we were on this track. And I think today we've recognized that, that that's, a, that's, a, that's a terrible nightmare. It's not, a, not really a dream at all. We don't really want that. So we need to move into this new paradigm, this new way of thinking to say that we must work with nature. We, we are part of the earth. And Brian hit the nail on the head there. You know, let's, let's create technologies that do that. I think it's very exciting. I, I speak at a lot of business schools, MBA programs, and I really encourage these young people to go out and form new businesses. Uh, we, we need growth in the world, we need, but we need growth in the right areas. We need to grow sustainable energy. Yes, there's one, but we also need to come up with technologies that will clean up the terribly polluted soils of the planet and water of the planet. Look at the Amazon that the oil companies have polluted. We need to clean that up, the polluted air. We need to come up with new technologies that will help starving people in Africa and around the world uh, grow food more efficiently, store it, and distribute it. There's a tremendous potential here. Uh, to move in very exciting directions. Uh, we just need to channel uh, people to think that way, to feel that way, and to recognize that the, the real democracy today is the marketplace. It's what you and I choose to buy. Uh, we, we determine which companies are going to make it. These company, corporations are just a bunch of people who come together uh, to convince people to buy things. Uh, but let's convince the corporations and ourselves. We, uh, we are members of those corporations. Let's convince ourselves that the things we want to buy are the things that are really going to make this a better world for our children and grandchildren. And I think that's the real direction that we can move in. And, and, and I think we are moving in that direction, but we've got to move harder and faster. And programs like this are wonderful in terms of inspiring and empowering people to do that. Now, Sim Haramain, could you sum up your conclusions today? I just think it's wonderful that these dialogues are happening because we're all researchers are doing very, very crucial research at this point. And when you're doing research and you're busy with all, you know, your day's works and, and night's works, <laughs> I'm sure for all of you as well, can uh, become isolated. So it's great that we can start communicating 
and uh, educating and letting the people out there know that there is alternatives, that there is hopes, that they can actually help by supporting these type of research and help in finding all sorts of uh, ways of um, becoming involved. And so, you know, become involved with yourself, become involved with this new paradigm, this new view, this new world that's developing and let's do it. I think it's very, very plausible and I think it's a wonderful future that's developing for generations to come and that this time in history will be remembered for a very long time on the other side of this, uh, this boundary condition, this birth that we're experiencing. And Brian O'Leary. Well, I, we need to find an opening here. I think we all agree on this program that, that we do have potential to create a, a, a sustainable, peaceful, and just world for humanity and for ourselves. And I hope to see that day while I'm still in human form on this planet. And John Perkins. Well, to me, it's a very exciting time. It, it is this time of the eagle and the condor coming together. And if we all understand that and, and really try to enjoy ourselves and in moving into this beautiful, incredible time, uh, we'll make it. And Bill Tiller. I am sure we will make it. And maybe we will remake our planet. We have the beginnings of a consciousness expansion that could remake the planet. And our future will deal with that, but perhaps far down the road. The issue as I see it is we must build ourselves within. In this first program, Crossing Over the Bridge Together, I do thank you gentlemen, Professor Bill Tiller, Nassim Haramain, Brian O'Leary and John Perkins. It's been a great privilege. And to our listeners today, I hope that you enjoyed this first Crossing Over the Bridge program with these wonderful gentlemen. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. in discussion welcomes listeners comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org this programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors
In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. 